Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. He grew up in a rural village in Romania. He's now an F1 team principal with decades of experience. Otmar Safnauer's story is unique. Back then, there were two cars in the village. My dad had one and the doctor had one. That's it. The rest were horse-drawn carriages, and you didn't go to the grocery store to get your milk. You went three doors down to the house that had a cow. Formula One is diametrically opposite to my upbringing from zero to eight. I'm happy that I actually experienced that. Otmar's led teams to podiums and victories. He's now trying to build a team that can win again and keep winning. Everyone trusting each other, no politics, just go racing. That is the fighting spirit, the culture that's required to win and achieve. A Formula One team, to be successful, needs to act more like pirates and not a navy. Hello everyone, it's Tom Clarkson here with F1 Beyond the Grid. In 2023, Alpine team principal Otmar Safnauer has seen his drivers crash into each other in Australia and Budapest. He's seen Esteban Ocon stand on the Monaco podium, and he's seen Pierre Gasly arrive and start to thrive. He's also seen Fernando Alonso and Oscar Piastri, drivers who once wore Alpine blue, achieve stunning results at other teams. Je ne regret rien, Otman might say. And we know from Drive to Survive that he's been learning French. So no regrets, just a determination to help the team rediscover the winning feeling they've known in the past, most recently with Ocon in Hungary 2021. This is a wide-ranging conversation that deals with everything from F1 politics to team culture. It was recorded before Laurent Rossi was replaced as Alpine CEO. But Otmar and I talk at length about the management of Alpine. And as he says, on the F1 side of things, the buck stops with him, and that's just the way he likes it. Otmar, great to have you on Beyond the Grid again. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a while. Um, five years. Five years, yes. I remember last time was... Uh, in a building that I don't think exists anymore. That's right. That was uh, in the Racing Point days, wasn't it? Could very well be, because five years ago it was Racing Point. Six but when now, Otmar, thank you very much for inviting me to your house in Oxford. I feel like we're in a very Formula One area. A lot of F1 people live near you. Do you ever hook up for dinners with your neighbours? Uh, not so much. Occasionally breakfast with Toto, but... Uh, he spends, I think, most of his time in, in Monaco now and not so much in England anymore. But when he spent more time in England, I would, I would see him for breakfast and occasionally for a drink in the evening. If I was uh, walking the dog and happened to notice that he was in, I would ring the bell. 
but apart from that, no other Formula One people, although, you know, Pierre Vachet lives close and some others that you see walking around, including I think Mike Crack doesn't live far. I see him in Summertown. And yeah, there's a few of us. When people talk about motorsport valley in the context of Formula One in the UK, what they really mean is this bit of Oxford, isn't it? Yeah, this bit of Oxford and, and, and around here. I'm sure there are people around Milton Keynes because of uh, Red Bull being out there. Um, but, you know, th- thinking about it, I do see Andy Green for dinner every once in a while. Uh, and I often walk uh, in university parks with Jun. Um, so, yeah, there's yeah, there's a few ah, of us around here. It's really lovely. But as we've already said, it's been five years. There's a lot to talk about. But let's start with the here and now, how things are going at Alpine. And first and foremost, how's your French coming on? Anyone who saw you on Drive to Survive in the latest series, Je m'appelle Otmar, how's it going? I haven't increased my vocabulary that much. I decided it was better at my age to have a limited vocabulary but very good pronunciation as opposed to uh, a pretty wide-ranging vocabulary and not being able to pronounce them. So, Well, I think the accent's perfect. Yeah, I just focused on things like uh, magnifique. Let's hope there's lots more of that in the future as well. <laughs> exactly. But how would you sum up then the first half of 2023? Not quite what we had anticipated. I think we did a decent job over the winter in getting a bit closer to Mercedes and Ferrari. And um, I think we were treading water when compared to Red Bull. But Aston did a a very good job to supplant themselves in between us and, and Red Bull, where last year they were well behind us. So where we wanted to be a much stronger fourth, we saw ourselves in the first half of the year mainly fifth with uh, four strong teams ahead of us. And every other race or so, we would uh, perform at a a very competitive level, mainly at races where the power sensitivity is a bit lower. Uh, We do well. We qualified fourth and seventh in, in Monaco and ended up third and seventh. And again, that's a circuit where, you know, it's, it's more car and driver, and um, the, the other thing that pleased me was, uh, you know, on merit again, come Barcelona where your aerodynamic efficiency and performance really counts, although he ended up getting some penalties. Pierre qualified fourth on merit and uh, only 80 milliseconds off the front row. That tells me we did a decent job uh, on the chassis over the winter, and now it's uh, it's for us to make sure we the commensurate points come along with that uh, good chassis. And we haven't quite done that yet. Is Enstone performing as well as it did last year when he finished fourth in the Constructors' Championship? Yeah, so Enstone is. Um, you know, it's it's a bit masked. We had some issues in Baku. We really couldn't show our pace. Uh, we're on the back foot there. Only one free practice. I think we did three laps and therefore didn't get the car in the right window. We, did, we had a not a great race in Baku at all. Due to score really good points in Australia, three laps from the end, red flag, and then a uh, standing restart, unheard of. They crash into each other. We get zero points. And, uh, you know, we've we've had some other bad luck, including Silverstone running in seventh and uh, not being able to get by Fernando, although I think we're a bit quicker than him. 
and we pit to undercut them. And just as we pit, the safety car comes out, ruins our race. So we, we've been, you know, I, I'm, I'm a believer of, you you know, you make your own luck. The harder you work, the luckier you get. But we've truly been unlucky this year. What about the power unit? Do you feel you're lacking a little bit? I think we're lacking not so much in the in, internal combustion engine side, maybe a little bit down, but mainly through the electrical power and uh, charging the battery I think we clip a lot more than some of our competitors and because of it that means there are certain circuits where it doesn't matter as much or when when it's raining it doesn't matter that much you know uh, but there are other circuits like uh, Silverstone Spa and some power hungry circuits including Austria where uh, we're going to suffer a little bit more compared to our competitors. Let's talk about some of the highs and the highest point so far has, of course, been Esteban's P3 in Monaco. But can we start talking about the day before qualifying in Monaco? Everyone was eulogizing about the Q3 laps of Fernando Alonso and, and Max Verstappen. But I would argue strongly that Ocon's Q3 lap was every bit as good as theirs. Me too. And, you know, you're not as biased as I am. <laughs> I'm trying to be objective. Yes. <laughs> So I'm glad, as an objective observer, you think Ocon's lap was as good as theirs, because I do too, but I have an inherent bias. Esteban was good all weekend, or great all weekend, I should say. Uh, from the get-go, he, he was on it, and it showed in qualifying, and uh, he did a great job in the race. And was he bouncing off the walls like a pinball in quali? Not literally. He was inch-perfect. In quality, I think he got everything out of the car and was out there at the right time, did a really good job. I also want to talk about Pierre's Q4 before the penalties in Spain. Do you feel that that was the moment when it all started to click for him? Yeah, for him to uh, to be P4 on merit in, in Spain at a track where, like I say, aero efficiency is king was exceptional. You know, Pierre has also had some good races for us, but he's had mixed qualifying results as well looking back at you know the first race we had a car that was capable of q3 and he uh qualified at dead last he was still getting used to the team at that point so from going from qualifying a, a pretty decent car dead last to then in barcelona you know putting it on this second row in in p4 is, is pretty good going and he's he's also had some some good races and some bad luck as well. I think he would have finished fourth in Australia, but uh, yeah, that's where we're running. But it wasn't. What to was be. he struggling with early doors with this car? Nothing I could pinpoint, other than he would get up to speed, FP1, FP2, FP3. It all looked good, and then just couldn't extract the performance out of it. Um, so I think that's just a matter of getting used to what you then have to do in Q1 of qualifying with a car, and he quickly learned that. And what about Esteban? You've worked with him for many years at Force India before. How has he changed as a driver since then? He's much more experienced. He's seen a lot more. And when he faces tricky situations, he can rely on his past experience to get through it and get through it in a very good manner. I'll give you an example. He did a great job last year at Monaco in the end was about to out qualify Fernando. This is in 2022, but it wasn't to be 
on a really good lap. However, he started the weekend over a second behind Fernando. And he's learned from that to where this year in Monaco, he started the weekend on pace and ended the weekend on pace. It was much better. So he's learning he's from getting, past experiences. Exactly. Like, he's getting stronger and stronger. Whereas what back in the Force India days, brilliantly fast, but it was all it was all pants. new to it was a bit new to him. Um uh, and and two back then, you know, he he wanted to make his mark to ensure that he stayed in Formula One and therefore you take some undue risks when you're doing that kind of thing. Whereas now he's an established Formula One driver and he doesn't have to do those kinds of things anymore. Therefore, he's you know he's more he's more established. He makes different decisions. He's more rational. So different decisions, better decisions. Better decisions. So when we saw him and Checo tripping over each other in the Force India era, you think he that wouldn't happen now? I think that would happen less now. Now a lot has been made in the press, at least, of Pierre and Esteban's long and sometimes tense relationship. How would you sum it up? What are your observations after six months? Pleased that all the naysayers out there so far have been wrong. And they were right in saying we're professional racing car drivers. And of course, we will work together to maximize the performance of the team. And they've done just that. Have there been any issues at all? No issues. They collaborate very well. If they agree with their feedback, you know, that one will say, yep, I, I feel exactly the same thing that Pierre does and elaborates on it if it's Esteban and vice versa. Or if they feel things that are different, you know, they'll say, but they do it in a professional manner. Do they communicate directly in a debrief or, or are we in Senna Pross territory or Hamilton Rosberg territory where it was only the engineers that would communicate? They communicate directly. So they will say when, say, Pierre's debriefing or Esteban's debriefing, they will interject and say, yeah, yeah, I feel exactly the same, not through the engineers. And what about after Melbourne when they they crashed, you know, right at the end? And, of course, it was into each other. Yeah, so watching it, I was unsure. You know, is it 50-50, 60-40? It's in that region. And the nice thing is they both felt contrite. So each one of them thought, they could have maybe done something differently to avoid it. They were apologetic, which is good. So the, the right attitude, um, a lot of points to be had there, and, and we didn't get them because they came together. But, uh, you know, Pierre was thinking, uh, perhaps I shouldn't have gone off and come back on where I did, and Esteban thinking, well, he did come back on. Maybe I should have seen that gap closing. or you know. So each one of them took some responsibility for it. And does the fact that you used to race, and I think, is that your helmet that behind my, me? That is my helmet. Uh, Formula Ford 2000. Yeah, and look at that. That's my Formula Ford 2000 Hall of Fame plaque. <laughs> Coulda, woulda, shoulda, Otmar. <laughs> but does the fact that you used to race help you in any way to communicate with the drivers? Do you feel like there are situations where the fact that you've raced help you understand? It definitely helps me understand. Yeah, it definitely helps me understand. It, it helps me to understand the judgment calls that they make and helps me understand what they should have anticipated. It helps me understand the fact that, you know, if there is a bit of, poetic license in what they say, I can say, no, 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 no. That's not how it happens. 
Don't fool me. I, I can smell that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Talking of judgment calls, there has been some controversy away from the racetrack, if you like, at Alpine this year when, you know, we've just discussed the collision in Australia, no points there. Then we go to Baku three, four weeks later, and it's a difficult weekend for the team. And in Miami, Laurent Rossi, the CEO of Alpine, goes to the press and he berates the team publicly, calling it amateurish and full of dilettantes. You've had a few months to think about that now. What are your reflections on that period? Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I understand it. Would I have done the same to motivate a team? Probably not. But you say you understand it. You understand why he went to the media. I understand the pressure that Laurent must be under working on delivering a new brand in Alpine cars and also being responsible for a Formula One team. Just one of those two things is a massive job. But to have both of them and, uh, you know, the eyes of the Renault seniors as well as the board upon the, not just the Formula One team, but also the brand building exercise, that's got to be huge, huge pressure. You know, like I say, from the CEO, from the board, I kind of get that pressure forcing such a response. Had he spoken to you about that pressure prior to that? No, but I, I can, you know, I can sense it and I can feel it. And yeah, I, I can see it in, in people's mannerisms and their body language and how they conduct themselves. So I could sense the pressure. So when the on-track performance isn't quite what we all want it to be, you know, that pressure can cause different reactions from different people, and I handle it differently. You say you understand it, but were you disappointed? I personally would, would have done it differently, only because my belief is that uh, what has to happen when you want better performance is uh, getting the entire team together, having a good understanding of what's happening, and then planning your way to make changes such that you reach the success that you want to have. And that's sometimes better done behind closed doors, frank discussion, and 
an introspective view by everybody and then plan a better future. And I, I think that type of strategy goes uh, a lot further in making sure that the success that everybody hopes for can be reached. So it's it's a coincidence that the very next race we go to, you have your best race weekend as a team of the year so far. Yeah, I mean, upgrades are planned long in advance. It's coincidental that we had a poor Baku, which wasn't planned, then a decent Miami qualifying fifth and eighth and having both of them in the points. And then coincidentally, a not so power sensitive circuit in Monaco, where the drivers also matter a bit. We qualify fourth and seventh and end up on the podium in seventh. So a great result. But for me, was I surprised? Not really. Have those comments from Laurel changed your relationship with him? No. Like I said, I I understand it. I understand where it came from. And I understand the, uh, you know, the, the pressure he's under as well. I work for us to be successful, for Laurent to be successful, for Renault to be successful, for Alpine to be successful. But I realize that success in our game doesn't happen overnight. The medium and long term, you've, you have to put the building blocks in place to be able to have that success. And if you look back at Mercedes, who bought Braun, championship winning team it took them five years to win another championship after braun red bull very successful they bought jaguar i think jaguar was a strong mid mid grid team when they bought them they weren't ninth place or tenth place i think they were fourth and fifth in, in that region took red bull with all the resources and money that they needed five years to start winning and Aston have done a really good job. I know how they've done it. Lawrence Stroll bought out of administration Force India in 2018. We're in 2023 now, five years. So it takes time. And I realize that. And if you realize that, then you just keep working at it and making sure you put the building blocks in place such that in the future, you too have a chance at winning. If you don't have that deep understanding, then I think the pressure can get to you. And when that pressure does get to you, like I said, people react differently to it. Do you believe in Laurel Rossi's 100 race plan, which takes us to 2024? He wants to be in a position to challenge for victories next season. I don't know when that 100 race has started. But for me, it started 30 races ago, I was told. So... To have 70 races left to do it, which is less than three years. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe it. We're on our way. We were improving the infrastructure. There's a new manufacturing facility that's about to come online for us. We're also moving all the aerodynamicists closer to the, or moving them into the design office so they're closer to their counterparts that they need to communicate with. We've ordered a new simulator. Uh, we just got our lap sim working. So all these things are, are happening. And then we've also identified and agreed to hire some like-minded individuals that are coming in 2024 that should help us significantly in our quest to have the best chassis. All those things are happening. They take time. And even when the individuals do come, it takes a while for them to learn our systems, our processes, and the people they're working with. So there is a little bit of lag 
as well. So yeah, I still believe in the 100 race plan. Omar, one of the things you said earlier was that you know how Aston Martin have made the step that they have. Now, taken at face value, they've gone to Red Bull, taken Dan Fallows, who was Adrian Newey's number two, and 18 months later, here we are with a car that's very competitive. Well, it was it was more than just Dan. There were some others from Red Bull, too, that came, uh, mainly in the aero department and some other departments. There's uh, Eric... Uh, Eric Blondin from Blondin Mercedes. from Mercedes yeah. and then some others from Mercedes as well. How many people do you need to hire to make that difference? That's a good question. People have asked me that before. And, you know, out of a team of, say, 800, 900, every one of the members has a key role to play. Some of those members, if they do their job perfectly don't have an impact on the performance of the car, positive impact on the performance of the car. If they don't do their job perfectly, they can stop the car on track. And it's probably of those members a good 10 to 15% that have a positive impact on the performance of the car. Those are the ones that uh, you need you need to focus on. And you know, if that's 100 out of the 800 for argument's sake, you don't need 100 new ones, <laughs> you know what I mean? You need to understand what areas you can bolster, and it could be as little as 10 to 15 to 20 people that can uh, have a big impact on improving the performance of the car. My, my guess is 20 to 25. All depends on the organization that you already have. And what about the facilities in, in Enstone? You say that you've got a new manufacturing facility coming on stream. How far away are you from the Aston Martin technology campus where you were before? Is that now, I mean, is that now the gold standard, what they've done in Silverstone? Well, there's, you know, there's also a wind tunnel that we mustn't forget. You know, some things don't matter as much. You know, the, the, the tools that you need to produce uh, and to develop a uh, competitive race car is what you need first and foremost, and other things are nice to have. So the must-haves is what we're focusing on. And for me, a state-of-the-art simulator is a must-have. And Aston have one, and, and we don't, and that's coming. Manufacturing facilities to be able to make things in-house and get them to the track quicker, you know, that too is, a, is an important part. And uh, we're about to launch a improved and enhanced and uh, a larger manufacturing facility, which, which will help us. But you also need good correlation of all the simulation tools. And so far, correlation has been pretty decent. Let's see what happens as the granularity of the arrow becomes even, even greater as the you know fidelity becomes higher. Hopefully, we'll still correlate well. But that's key as well. And is this where the 200 million euro cash injection, if you like, that the team has had from investors, including Hollywood superstar Ryan Reynolds, is this... How are you going to spend that cash? We will spend some of that cash in that way. Exactly right. But the other thing we desperately need is a bit of headroom on the CapEx cost cap because we're full uh, with just updating computer systems, licenses that we need, gearbox dynos that are required for the 2026 regulations. By the time you spend all that money, you you don't have much or if any headroom in the uh, capex cost cap so we need a little bit of that too 
Can we just investigate that a little bit more? Because I know other teams are banging this drum as well. For people who don't know, what is the capex number now? And what do you think a reasonable figure is going forward? Yeah, so it's thirty-six million now, and and I think annually, or is that over? No, a period of time? it's over a four-year period with indexation with inflation. That probably goes to about forty, and my guess is it needs to be fifty-five, something like that. Some of the bigger teams had the infrastructure that we require prior to the cost cap coming in. And others who had the financial wherewithal saw the cost cap coming and quickly spent and improved their infrastructure before the cost cap was applied. And then there's others who didn't have the financial wherewithal at the time and now are stuck with this, uh, with this cap and, and can't get to a level playing field. And I think, uh, I think it's necessary to not freeze in disadvantages, be it a frozen engine that somebody's disadvantaged by, or be it a cost cap where the infrastructure that you have is frozen and it's not as good as some other teams. So I think we need to have in all areas where we freeze things, uh, you have to freeze in an even playing field. And we haven't done that. It's not the fault of anyone because we're learning the cost caps new, the frozen engines new, so as we learn, I, I think we need to equalize some of those discrepancies. You need five teams to agree to increase the CapEx expenditure. Do you think you're going to find five teams? I think we can. Yeah, I think there's five that want to do it. So we've spoken about Enstone. What about Viry Chatillon in, in Paris, which is where the power units are made? Is that where it needs to be? When you look at the money being spent at Red Bull powertrains, for example, does money need to be spent there as well? Yeah, so the money that's come in will be spent equally between us, Viri, and uh, Alpine Cars. So both places need money to be spent such that we get better output. It seems unfair to compare you to Aston Martin because there are so many parallels. It's where you came from before. You spent 10 years at the team 12, 12, you've shown me 12 years at the team. Sorry, I can't count. Um, and of course, it's where Fernando Alonso, who was at Alpine last year, he went there as well. We've talked about drivers, but I did also want to ask you, is Alpine missing the experience of Fernando Alonso this year? Experience does count for a lot. However, after a certain point, you're at the margin and at diminishing returns and our drivers, both of our drivers, are still relatively young. They're fast, but they also have good experience. They haven't won world championships, so, and Fernando has. So you can say, well, you know, Fernando knows how to win world championships, but our guys have won races. They're fast. They have good racecraft. And, you know, I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy with the experience of both of our guys. Fernando triggered the driver market moves in Hungary, uh, where we've just been last year. I think Sebastian Vettel triggered. Well, true. <laughs> That's true. That is where it started. Had he not retired, none of that would have happened. But Alonso openly admits that he operates on the dark side. It's a quote he's come out with. Having worked with him for a few years now, would you agree with him? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what he means by the dark side, but... Uh... 
uh, you know, I, I work. I think with he them. he quite enjoys being the pantomime villain. I think. Look, for me, he was a free agent, and if you're a free agent, you're free to sign with us, sign with somebody else. Until you've signed on the dotted line, you're free to do whatever. With us, he wanted a bit more time than he wanted a longer term contract than we were uh, happy to sign up for. And I think Aston gave him that longer term contract and he did what he thought was best for him. And when you're a free agent, fair enough. Any regrets? No, no. We just have to get the best out of the two drivers that we have now. Fernando's doing a great job at uh, at Aston. He's been on the podium quite a few times this year. But for me, it's uh, it's not about what could have been or the opportunity cost. It's about getting the best out of the drivers we currently have. Do you still speak to Fernando? When I have occasion to, yeah. But uh, you know, we we're not in the same team, so it's it's rare that I bump into him. What about Flavio Briatore? Yeah, I saw Flavio at. At a race recently, uh, I, I talked to him. He's been at a few races this yeah. year. Yeah, I think I saw him at a couple of races. And yeah, whenever I can, I, I do speak to him. I, I saw him in... But in no the, hard feelings with Flavio as well, because of course... No, uh, it, it's it's the old, you know, I'm a free agent. Yeah, no, it's, you it's can't fair. argue with that. Equally, when you saw Oscar Piastri finishing fourth at Silverstone a few weeks back, were you surprised? Had you told me two, three races ago, there's going to finish fourth at Silverstone. I would have been surprised. But uh, having been there and seen the circumstance and the pace of their car, yeah, I, I wasn't surprised. You know, he, he did a good job to bring it home in fourth. And, you know, like I say, somebody asked me, are you happy for Oscar? And my response was, well, Oscar needs to be happy for Oscar. I'm happy for my drivers when they do well. He's a competitor. Am I happy when he finishes fourth? Nothing against Oscar, but no, we're competing against him. I want to finish fourth. But knowing him as you do, you're not surprised that he has the ability to produce the performance that he did at Silverstone. Yeah, so the car at Silverstone was good. Uh, where did Lando finish in the same car? Second. Lando showed what you can do in, in that car at Silverstone, and you know Oscar wasn't that far behind, but... Uh, you know, had he beaten Lando, then I would have been even more impressed. I'm sorry to drag it up because so much has been said and written about what happened with Oscar and McLaren and the tug of war. Are you confident that that will never happen again in terms of losing one of your young drivers? Because you've got some really good guys now coming through in, in Jack Doohan, in Victor Martins. Are you confident that you've got them under lock and key? So I hired a, a super lawyer, very experienced, and Caroline McGrory. I worked with her at uh, at Honda. She was uh, the Mercedes lawyer for quite some time and then went off to do some other things, including football and the Commonwealth Games. She is, I mean, she pays attention to detail, is incredibly intelligent, and now has great experience behind her. So I'm confident between myself and Caroline that we'll make sure that those loopholes in the contract will never arise again when did you hire caroline she joined us in april of this year now you've been involved in formula one 
for what is it 25 years more than 25 years what would you say has been your most satisfying formula one season to date that's that's a good question 2004 oh crikey bar when you when you finished second in the constructors championship really okay why why two four well second in the constructors championships and a bunch of podiums didn't win because if i remember right ferrari were so dominant now the other season that i thought was absolutely brilliant was when we had a race win with checo 2020 that's the year that i had in mind so i was surprised to hear you say 2004 2004, second in the championship is is pretty good but you didn't win no as you say but but 2020 checo wins a race in sakir we had that brilliant lance stroll from last to first yes double podium Lance was third. And then, of course, that year as well, you had Lance Stroll's pole position in Turkey as well. Yeah, and leading the race by a good margin. How can you achieve that in a team that has, okay, it was owned by Lawrence Stroll at the time, but it was still very small in comparison to the the people that were the regular front runners? So we, we had a really, really good bunch of uh, racers there. Yeah, not a lot of us, probably half in in numbers and less than half of the budget but most importantly probably one fiftieth of the development budget and we still i mean achieved yeah we didn't win but we achieved and and that's all down to everyone trusting each other knowing that they're working for each other and with each other no politics just go racing do what's best for the car and on-track performance. Everybody in the team had the same attitude, worked together, pulled in the same direction. And when you do that in a high-performing team, you can really achieve, even if your numbers are not quite at the same level as some of your competitors. Is that what you're trying to recreate at a bigger team, admittedly, but at Alpine? That is the fighting spirit, the culture that's required to win and achieve. And I'm sure Mercedes, although they're big and they won, had that type of culture too. How much more difficult is it to have that culture in a team that is twice the size of Racing Point back then? It's harder. It it is definitely harder. And it has to come from the leadership first and foremost, but then it also has to trickle down to the middle managers. They have to understand it. They have to live it. And they have to treat their employees in the same manner that the leadership treats them. And if you can get that throughout the organization, you've got a good chance of success. But it's just harder to do. There's more layers. There's more people. And everyone's got to think in the same manner and have that racing fire in their belly to succeed. And that's harder. The more you have, it's harder to do. But that's what you want to instill. That's what's needed to win. Now, talking of management layers at least from the outside it looks like there's been another layer added in the last few weeks with the announcement that bruno famine is fronting all of alpine's motorsport programs now how does that impact you and the formula one team well on a on a practical level uh i don't know because it's so new but uh theoretically no impact whatsoever apparently laurent will focus more on the car business, and it's a big job. Like I said, that in itself is a big job to launch 
three new vehicles in the next three years and increase revenue from less than a billion to eight billion and start developing distribution networks in places where we have none. And it's a big job. So it'll just mean that Laurent in his future will have less to do with racing. And, uh, you know, it all now comes under Bruno. But like I said, having had brief discussions, because this is late breaking news, it's new news, everyone said has zero impact on what I do from day to day. So um, it'll just mean that whatever discussions I had with Laurent in the future will first take place with Bruno. For F1, does the buck stop with you still? The buck will stop with me in F1, which I like. I don't want it to stop with anyone else. It raises an interesting question about the structure of a Formula One team. Some, I'm thinking of Mercedes and Red Bull, you have a team principal and a CEO in one person in Toto Wolff and and Christian Horner. Others look at what they're doing at Alpha Tauri now, where you have a, a CEO and a team principal coming in. What do you think is the best balance? I think Formula One teams need to be very efficient. And I always say a Formula One team, to be successful, needs to act more like pirates and not a navy. And big corporations, to be successful, need to act more like a navy and not pirates. So in a pirate ship, you need one captain. You don't need a CEO and a captain. And we're pirates. So the smaller and the less structure that you have, the better off you are. And Bruno Famine's arrival won't affect... You're still going to be pirates and not a navy. I'm still going to be a pirate. Uh, Otmar or, or Captain Jack Sparrow, as I feel I should call you now. What are your goals then? Let's throw it forward. Goals for the remainder of 2023. So having started where we started and, and knowing what I know now, for us, a success would be towards the end of the season for us to be the fourth fastest team. We're not quite there yet but we're not far off at certain circuits where we have a bit more parity on the powertrain. They're a little bit more, I shouldn't say closer together, but they have less of an influence on lap time. The powertrain does where it's more chassis driver engineers, other things. Uh, and the only reason I say that is because the powertrain's frozen. Can't do anything about it. I'd like for us to truly be the fourth fastest team. And I think we can achieve that. We're not far off. And that is different to finishing fourth in the Constructors' Championship. It is different because uh, now looking at how far ahead our competitors are in points, it's going to be difficult to make up those points and finish fourth. However, if we can be the fourth fastest team, we will have made strides and that will bode well for next year's car and uh, how we're going to start next year because next year we definitely have to move up it's just a relentless job it's a relentless sport isn't it there's pressure pressure all the time but it's enjoyable do you enjoy the pressure i do i enjoy our sport you know i've lived it for a long time i enjoy the the challenge of our sport and to have a team of 950 people and organize them in a in a manner where we're efficient we're pirates we can react quickly 
we have good drivers, we have good engineers, we have good understanding of, uh, of the chassis and putting all that together to compete on track. I, I love it. Do you ever stop and reflect on your time as a child in communist Romania and think just how far removed your current job is, your current life is? Yeah, that, I don't think of that often, but, uh, you know, occasionally, like I was speaking with uh, a friend of mine the other day who lives just down the road here, but he has got nothing to do with Formula One, and he was born and raised in Africa. And we we're talking about the differences of Africa to here and now communist Romania to here. And I was telling him, you know, when I was six, seven years old, it was fun living in the little village I lived in. And especially the summers were warm and, you know, everyone grew their own produce and the neighbor had a cow and we got our milk from the neighbors. And, but what I was really looking back at is the fact that uh, we didn't have running water, we didn't have a telephone in the house, and, and we didn't have a television. Yeah, we had electricity, but, you know, life was more rudimentary back then, but it was very fun and rewarding too. And yeah, Formula One is diametrically opposite to my upbringing from zero to eight, and then we moved to Detroit, which was also different. Had you not moved as a family at the age when you were eight to Detroit, what do you think you would have ended up doing? I don't know. That's so hard to predict. But I doubt I'd, I would have been in Formula One. Even though I loved racing from a young age, the opportunities wouldn't have been there. Do you think that upbringing gives you perspective that a lot of people in this sport don't have? I think it does give me perspective. And I find or I count myself lucky, even though it was only eight years and probably only five of those eight I have memories of. This is really only five years of memories, but I count myself lucky to have lived a, such a rudimentary life back then and now live the life we're living with computers and smartphones and smartwatches and all sorts of things when, you know, back then there are two cars in the village. My dad had one and the doctor had one. That's it. The rest were horse-drawn carriages. And like I said, you didn't go to the grocery store to get your milk. You went three doors down to the house that had a cow. That's so different. But I'm happy that I actually experienced that. You know, in the States, you probably had to live in the late 1800s to experience that, not 1968 or 1970. Oh, my yours is an extraordinary story. It's been brilliant to catch up. We mustn't leave it five years until we do this again. Thanks, Tom. Otmar's story is an extraordinary one, which began in Romania and took a detour via Detroit and ended up with him in Formula One. If you want to hear more about his early life and career, have a listen to his first appearance on Beyond the Grid in December 2018, when he discusses his journey to the pinnacle of motorsport at length. It's always good to speak to Otmar. No topic is off limits, he tackles everything head on, and he's done that here be it his revealing comments about the Alpine power unit or his thoughts on Laura Rossi's outburst in Miami. He's happy to discuss it all. Otmar, many thanks for your time and see you soon. So what do you think about what Otmar had to say there? Do you think Formula One teams should act like pirates? 
Will Alpine have the fourth fastest car by season's end? Send me your thoughts and I'll read some of them out at the end of next week's show. Contact me through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Mario Illion after last week's show. It was great to hear from him, one of the unsung heroes of our sport. Let's start with this from Sid. What an incredible story. As someone who enjoys making small F1 models, drive shafts, gearboxes and other small bits at home, listening to Mario's story of making a whole engine blew my mind. He clearly comes across as a master of his craft, just like Gordon Murray or Adrian Newey. Sid, thank you for that. Great to hear from you. And I, like you, was blown away by most of what Mario had to say last week. And what about this from Ryan Hellier? Wow, fascinating. I've never heard an interview with Mario before. So fascinating. Thank you for sharing. Ryan, thanks for your message. I think it's really important that this podcast, F1 Beyond the Grid, sheds light on people like Mario. He's not a household name, but to get a true appreciation of such a technical sport, you need to know what people like him have achieved in the past. And that's what we've done here. And finally, let's hear from Marzi Grab. F1 engineers, particularly on the engine side, are so inspirational, utterly relentless in the pursuit of perfection. They are, aren't they? And thanks for your message, Marzi Grab. At 24 horsepower gained every year in the late 90s quite extraordinary. The rate of progress back then was almost unbelievable. We'll leave it there for comments this week. And thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing from you and we do read all of your comments, even if your comment doesn't get read out here. Thanks for listening. Please do leave us a review, share the podcast with a friend and follow the show so you get our next episode as soon as it lands. See you next week when I'll be joined by another great guest from the world of Formula One. F1 Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out.